Hello and welcome to episode 50 of A Positive Podcast. Today's episode is powered by okclarity.com. More about them later in the show. And today's episode is sponsored by a dear friend, Chevy Bronstein, in loving memory of her grandmother, Gela Basmardechai, who recently passed. In her own words, as Chevy describes her grandmother, she says, Safta was truly a queen. She made everyone feel comfortable and at ease. She had an amazing way of communicating with everyone. And she would say, I do my best and Hashem will do the rest. May we all try to live up to that example. May her neshama have an aliyah and may she continue to be a good to better to all of her children and grandchildren. Thank you for your sponsorship, Chevy. It truly means a lot and allows us to continue producing quality episodes for our listeners. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or to celebrate an upcoming special occasion, or just because you appreciate what we're doing here, please reach out on our website, apositivecoach.com, or you can email me at razel at jewishpeabody.com. In addition, if you're curious to hear more about positive psychology-based life coaching and to see what it's about, if it's a fit for you, how you can gain from it, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, and you can set up a free consultation today. So don't hesitate. Check it out. In addition, I want to share with you all a great resource. If you're feeling overwhelmed, feeling inadequate in your parenting, and you're looking for support, I have a really good resource for you. There's a great parenting coach who I personally know and comes highly recommended. Her name is Hinda Sussiver. And Hinda partners with parents to create emotional safety and to build connection with their people with their children. She does this through the prism of Tyra and the values of Chassidus. And she helps parents cultivate confidence in their parenting. She helps them get greater presence, more self-awareness, deeper connection with themselves and their children. And she's helped many parents bring peace into their parenting journey. And she also offers a six-week parenting course, which is all based on neuroscience and Hasidis. And she does private coaching on Zoom and in person. And I'm sure she can help you navigate this complex world of parenting. So check her out. You'll thank me later. Her website with all the info is chinuchwithconnection.com. That's chinuchwithconnection.com. In today's episode, my husband, Rabbi Nechamia, and myself, we sit down with the incredible Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Rabbi Y.Y. needs no introduction. I'm sure all of you listening have you know, heard many of his lectures, his text-based classes, Fabrengans, etc. And I'm so grateful to Rabbi Jacobson for giving us this time and allowing for us to ask him some hard questions and to dig deeper into questions that many parents and educators and grandparents are struggling with. And as usual, Rabbi Jacobson, in his amazing, articulate manner, he shares his wisdom and his insight on this very important topic. It's a powerful conversation. We talk about the difference between woke liberalism's approach to parenting and Hasidus' approach to parenting and how we can differentiate between the two. We also delve into the significance of choosing connection over behavior when dealing with challenges with our loved ones. And throughout this conversation, Rabbi Jacobson provides insights into the teaching of Hasidus and how they can be applied to modern parenting. He explains why connected parenting or connected relationships with our loved ones is not woke, but instead it's the essence of Hasidus. And he sheds light on how some of these approaches towards parenting are actually rooted in the ancient teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow.
Okay, so I really want to discuss a lot of different topics, but I really want to get some clarity on these few questions. So I'm going to start with my first one. So in general, humans, all of us, we've never been healthier. We've never been more authentic, more vulnerable. And a lot of what we know today is coming from, obviously from the source from Tyra, but a lot of it is coming from the world around us, from the secular world, from psychology, um, telling us about the importance of working on ourselves, therapy, psychoeducation, and at the same time, many people, specifically the youth, younger people, are also being influenced and impacted by the, I want to call it the woke world of TikTok or Instagram. You know, even my my children will come to me. Oh, I, I heard about this idea. I'm like, well, where did you hear about it? Like, she, she said, uh, from TikTok. It, it's like they're getting their information this way. Um, and I'm not only talking about teens. I'm talking about younger people as well, young adults as well. And we're seeing a lot of amazing things happening. We're seeing teens that are working on themselves, young adults that are doing their hard work and really changing themselves from the inside out. And at the same time, what we're also seeing is um, there's some ideas of victimhood that are coming through. And the left liberalism mentality is spewing their own ideology and their own thoughts and it's coming through as well. And although they do have some truth in what they're saying, because we know that everything stems from some, is grounded in truth, they have, there's a lot of victimhood and they're getting stuck a little bit in this victimhood, you know, and that's coming through a little bit and it is holding people back from truly growing and healing. And I know last year, Yutas Kislev, you and Rabbi Shays Taub um, led a, like a six hour for bringing that I listened to, and it was so incredible and so life-changing in so many ways. And you said many, many incredible things there. And it was very revolutionary. And although they're all teachings from the Rebbe and from Chassidus, it felt very new and it felt very much like a new approach to the world. Um, you shared ideas about how people are not bad, but they're, they're broken. Um, and so my first question is, this is a two-part question. My first question is, how do we discern, how do we differentiate between what is coming out of the TikTok, Instagram, woke, liberal, leftist ideology, victimhood mentality, and what is the real, authentic, um, true, Tyradika, um, Hasidus? And because if somebody wants to say, and I'm sure there are people that will say that some of the teachings, some of the classes that you're giving have that, I don't want to say um, flavor, but I will say that. It has that idea coming through. Very, very new agey. I don't know. It's not only new agey. It has that elements of, of those ideas that are coming through a little bit, even though I don't hear them, but I've heard people say this. And... I want to add another layer, a layer to that is how would you respond to people who would claim and say what you're doing, what you're teaching is no different than what happened in the early 19th century with the beginning of the conservative movement, that they wanted to maintain the Jewish tradition and they wanted to just adapt it to the modern world because it sounds oddly similar to the way that we are approaching all this. So two parts, two questions. I know it was long-winded, but if you can help bring some clarity to that question. Let me add one line on that. I think the term you guys used on the Yitzhak for bringing multiple times was Nishtanu Ha'itim and Nishtanu Hativim, that the times have changed and the nature of people have changed. And, you know, it's one thing if a Rebbe tells us that the times have changed and the, the or the Rambam says that nature of our bodies have changed, fruits before the meal after, but, it's, you know, with due respect to you, and, and there is incredible amount of respect, many are tining. Who, who are these newfangled leaders to say all these things? Right. 
Okay, beautiful, beautiful questions. And uh, thank you for the candidness and the opportunity to address these questions with candidness and sincerity and uh, even, you know, with some brevity, but at least, at least try with God's help uh, to give some clarity, at least the way I see it. In terms of your first question, how do you differentiate between what is authentically Judaism and what may be an influence, not just from the secular world, but sometimes the very left liberal secular world that is very alienated from the whole idea of Judaism and Torah and God and responsibility and morality and good and evil and all that. How does one differentiate between the two? I think there are a few things, but I would point out two, two major points. And that is, the first thing is, you look at the litmus test. This I, I heard from the Rebbe, from the Lubavitcher many, many times. He would say, sometimes there's confusion in life. You know, when somebody is teaching something, is it good? Is it not good? It sounds good, but you're not sure. Sometimes your own emotions are confusing. I'm having an emotion. Should I cherish this emotion and go with it? Or maybe this is one of the emotions, you know, I could bring up to my therapist, but I shouldn't really run with it. I should maybe quarantine it and say, you know, you, you're, under you're under investigation. Let's put it that way. We have to bring in the FBI and they say, we can't get rid of it maybe, but how do I know? It's not always clear. You know, obviously if you have an emotion to burn down your house and shoot somebody today, we know what Judaism says about that. But we know not everything is so, is so black and white. There are things ambiguous. And he would say something that seems simple, but it's really pretty profound. He said, you have to always look at what are the results in the person's behavioral life. If I hear a class, right? And as a result of that class, that night, I am kinder to my wife. I am kinder to my children. I may pray to Hashem with more sincerity. I may be able to share my love with more expansiveness and with less inhibition. I have more enthusiasm in my learning of Torah and my celebration of mitzvahs. My Shabbos table becomes a warmer experience and my children feel that their tati is more present and more loving and they become closer to me. Then you know, this is, the devil would say, you look at the results, the actions, if you see people becoming better, whatever better means, better from the Jewish perspective, in Torah, in Avoiding, whatever it may be in their personal life, in their social lives, in their business life, I'm becoming more honest, less gossip, less slander, less hate, less resentment, less jealousy, less negativity, more love, more empathy. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's the sign. If it's taking me away from my loved ones, it's making me more selfish, more condescending, more self-centered, less focused on bringing good into this world and into my life, then yes, it should be under a question mark. So I think it's very, very important. You know, when, when people are listening to classes, what are these classes motivating to you to do afterwards? Do they tell you, oh, uh, you know, get into a fight with your spouse, get into a fight with everybody you know, you know, stop talking to your sister and also stop talking to your sister more. <laughs> stop talking to your brother, make sure to never forgive anybody and hold, go, make sure to go to sleep with a lot of bitterness and resentment for you being the only intelligent person on this planet and everybody else being idiotic, then yeah, those classes should be put uh, under investigation. 
I think that's one very, very important thing. We have to really see the results. If I hear from a person that as a result of my class, he or she can now keep Shabbos where they weren't keeping Shabbos, or somebody has been inspired to be able to get help for their addiction, or somebody decided not to get divorced and work on their marriage, or somebody for the first time in five years reached out to their child and started a relationship, what does that tell me? If that's not, if that's not what Torah wants, then what, it, what, what is it that Torah wants? Let's remember the statement of the Rambam. The Rambam writes at the end of the laws of Tmura, something very powerful that the Rebbe would always quote. He would say, which means most majority of all laws of Torah. You're talking about all laws, laws about purity and ritual impurity, laws about mukluktsa, laws about mikvah, laws about sacrifices that are there to help people repair their consciousness, their mindsets, their deis, their, their perspectives, their opinions, their feelings, and make their actions beautiful and upright. So whenever we see that classes in Torah are helping people do that, I think that's a pretty powerful litmus test. I don't think it's the only, but I think it's a very powerful litmus test for it being authentically rooted. The second thing is always connected with sources, which I try to be very meticulous about. Most of my classes are textual classes. I do a lot of lectures, but there's a reason for it. Textual classes are often more difficult to give and less inspiring because they're tedious. As you know, I teach a lot of, most of my classes are textual classes. And a lot of people say, I don't like that. I just want, you know, a good joke, a good story, a good message. The reason I do that is for this specific reason. Anybody who sincerely, sincerely learns all of the works of the Baal Shem Tov, he didn't write them himself, but his students wrote them. All the works of the Magad of Mizrich and their students from all of the various Hasidic branches, people will be shocked on the depths of love and compassion and empathy that they continuously espouse. So yes, it's the exact opposite. The reason the secular world started to catch on to all these ideas is because it first came into the world through the spiritual masters of Judaism who have revolutionized the landscape of Judaism. And once an energy is unleashed into the world, the whole world receives it. In fact, the Kotsky Rebbe once said something amazing. He said, listen to this, what he said. He said, the reason why in the 19th century there was an explosion of romance in the secular world, it used to be marriage of Rossian more as a technical institution. The 19th century, with all of the novels, there was a change of culture. It's about love and romance. He said, you know how that came about? He said, that came out from the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement, he said, opened up the gates of love in heaven. And the whole world, the whole world tapped into it. So you could say romance, love, disgusting, immodest, horrible. You could say that. And you know what? Sometimes romance can be very disgusting. You know what? If it's with another wife, not your own wife. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. <laughs> exactly. And if I'm cheating and if I'm dishonest and if I'm betraying my, my most important relationships, romance could be the most horrible thing. But romance essentially is the ability to celebrate love. It's the ability to be in a relationship with ecstasy, with enthusiasm, where two people who cherish each other wake up every morning, smile at each other, and thank God that they have each other in their life. That's not evil. That's not impurity. So this is what the Kotzke Rebbe argued. It really goes back to the Song of Songs. I'm just giving an example. 
So a lot of the most powerful truths about the goodness in people, I mean, anyone who, who even touched the most superficial layer of Hasidic, let's call it teachings and writings, Chabad or otherwise, knows that the tenet, that goodness is at the core of every person, is an absolute. So when we take that seriously and we turn it into a holistic lifestyle, it's basically taking the Baal Shem Tov's teachings and really living with them. Now, we always have to be careful because boundaries could be crossed. We're all human. We're all prone to error. And that's why nobody should be above scrutiny. Nobody should be above investigation. Everyone should be entitled to ask the question, as we have in Allah, what's your source? I once heard from my brother. It was a very wise thing. He said, how do you know that you've chosen a good rabbi in life? And he said, ask the rabbi a question, and the rabbi will tell you an answer, and then ask him, what's your source? What's your source? He was talking to Bali Tshuva, the people who returned to Judaism. If he looks at you in disdain, like, you're asking me, what's my source? Who do you think you are? I've been doing this for 70 years. You don't even know how to read Hebrew. He says, he's not the right rabbi for you. If he humbly says, here, let me show you the book. Here, let's look at the source together. Or, I don't remember now, let me get back to you tomorrow or in a week and I'll show you my source. That's correct, because there's humility here. So whenever we have that ability to know that somebody is ready to do that and discuss it and say, I'm sorry if I made a mistake, I think these are some of the, what I would suggest would be very authentic litmus tests that somebody is following the trajectory and the path of Torah or somebody is deviating from it. When you say what's the difference between the conservative or reform movement of the 18th, movements of the 18th century and some of the classes that some of us are giving today, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful question. It's obviously a painful question. But I think, I hear again, it's a very, very clear litmus test. The mistake of the conservative and reform movements, and many of their leaders had good intentions. It's important to emphasize that. Not everybody had malicious intent. Some people had very, very good intentions was they absolutely invited and ushered in a path which literally breached some of the absolute halachas in Judaism. They compromised them. They felt maybe you had to, they felt the youth won't buy into it, but they turned certain mitzvahs into irrelevant. And they clearly called for the breaking of what we would call the Shulchan Aruch, the code of the Jewish law. And I think in Jewish history, that's been a very, very healthy litmus test. Meaning when any rabbi or teacher says, you know, instead of Shabbos, instead of uh, making a meal on Shabbos, we'll start gardening on Shabbos, or we'll do other things that violate Shabbos. Whatever it is, the moment one breaks what we call the Messiah, the halacha, the integrity of Jewish law, then obviously this is a deviation of traditional Torah observant Judaism. And they may have good intentions, but they're making a historical error because we're here three and a half thousand years later because of that tradition. But within the context of halacha, within the context of Judaism, when somebody is emphasizing certain points or bringing out certain truth that actually allow people to celebrate the mitzvahs with more enthusiasm and with more passion, then I think it's, it's on the contrary. I think it's also important to point out, till now I was on the defense, now I'm going to go a little offense. And that is, it almost seems to me, and I say this with really with a lot of respect, because 
I just don't have judgmentalism inside of me. So I really, I, I just don't judge people. I really, I've seen enough pain in my life not to judge people. So I really don't say this was judgmentalism. But it almost seems to me, I told this to somebody, that if Judaism sounds too happy and giving people too much serenity and trust and celebration, it almost sounds like that some people think it must be heresy. In other words, if I would get up and give speeches, fire and brimstone, and tell people how evil they are, how disgusting they are, how their children are even worse than them, and their children are worse than them, and we live in the most horrible, horrible generation ever, and the entitlement of our kids, they are brats, they are all suffering from narcissism, and it's all their parents' fault, their parents who are listening to podcasts by Razel Schusterman or other gurus who are teaching them to feel entitled and every emotion that they have has to be worshiped. And if they haven't had problems in childhood, there must be something wrong with them. Just to say thank you to mommy and tati is the most horrible thing in today's era. And you are all teaching this to them. And if you would just tell them the truth that they are horrible, self-centered monsters who are destroying tradition, destroying their families and they should repent. That somehow for some people sounds very, very Jewish. Oh. This is tired. This is mitzvahs. You know what? I feel bad for you. Because if this is really what God comes down to and what the whole Torah comes down to, okay, I can, I can honor your perspective. But when somebody says that there's a Judaism that we can teach people that makes them feel alive and empowered, allows people to explore every single part of themselves and not amputate anything, allows people to confront all their darkness and through pain, go out of the pain and even transform it and develop the deepest forms of marriages and relationships that are based on vulnerability and authenticity where people can really celebrate life. I think that's the most exciting thing that I would love to hear. And if we believe that we are on a journey from exile to redemption, isn't the definition of redemption that the glory of Hashem, of God is revealed in the world and Judaism becomes organic, not any more traumatic and not any more repressive. So I would argue that any class that I hear in Judaism that is not making us feel the celebration of the infinite and the celebration of goodness is probably a very, very narrow version of Judaism. And I think our youth deserves and is eager to hear something much deeper and more authentic. Okay, that's very, very powerful. I, if I can drill down a little bit, and I'm not holding on to the need or the desire to have miserable Judaism, but so it's but but to drill down on this idea of quote unquote new ideas. So it's clear that if it's sourced um, and it's beautiful, then it's good, um, and and certainly cannot uh, violate the boundaries of Allah. But there's also Minug and Ashkafa, and there's just certain things that are, they're, they're, they're not black and white. They're not law. They're just traditions, the way, the way things have been done forever. Like, and, and your knowledge of history is certainly, certainly going to be better than mine. But was there a time when Yiddishkeit was the beautiful Yiddishkeit that you just described? I mean, I mean prior to today's generation, maybe in Shlema. Right. Great question. So I'm going to address. I want to just add one more part to that. Just wanted to add a layer to that. I apologize for interrupting. You said the word litmus test. And you said if the litmus test is a way to gauge, and the Rebbe, you heard the Rebbe talk about this, was the results. Look at the results. So I would hear, I could hear people saying to me, okay, then if that's the case, well, let's look at the litmus test. 
All of you are being so open-minded and so warm and so welcoming. Let's look at our youth today. Look what look where it's going in the direction that it's heading right now. The face of Lubavitch, what it will look like, or the face of Yiddishkeit with this kind of thinking, what it's going to look like is not within the parameters of Tznias Halacha, not within the parameters we have teen that are not keeping Shabbos. We have, we have, we, I don't have to list it. You know it. Um, all, everyone listening understands what I'm talking about. So maybe they would say that your litmus test, actually, the results are not so great, Rabbi Jacobson. But in other words, we talk about connection. We're connected, but we're not necessarily getting the results. From, well, the, I guess the, definite, the question is what's the definition of result? Right. Is it from kite or is it connection? Is it love or is it more Torah? My kids will be very connected and happy if I was to be calm and have Pesach would be just joyful and the Seder would be like full of jokes and laughter and happiness. And let, let me add, and the brachs. Okay, well, that's that's another level. That's not a lot. That's Ashkaf. Well, you could be it's happy without Gabrach, but okay. <laughs> okay, you could go to a beautiful KMR um, Pesach program and have no Gabrachs and have absolutely the most amazing time ever. But I guess I'm just... I confess, feeling... I, confess I was there. <laughs> that's lucky you. So digging down into that, I'm just, I'm just adding another layer, if you don't mind, before we go to another question. An excellent, excellent, excellent question. The fact is that in the last 20, 30 years... We have seen an enormous amount of children growing up in very religious homes, leaving the path of Judaism in all communities, in Chabad, Vizhnitz, Satmer, Babav, Kloisenberg, Papa, et cetera, et cetera, all Hasidic communities, what you call the Litvish community, what you call the Yeshivish community, what you call the more modern Orthodox community, what you may call the national Zionist community in Israel, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this is a fact. Anybody who deals with youth today knows that the numbers are very, very large, unfortunately. And the families that are affected are basically almost every single family. Either the family itself, or I have a nephew, I have a niece, I have a cousin, I have a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, etc. Almost, I'm not going to say every family, but almost, almost every single family. And I would say, from somebody who has... Uh, probably without exaggeration spoken to not hundreds, but thousands, thousands of parents who have seen their children leave Yiddishkeit. Sometimes one child, sometimes two children, sometimes three or four children. And leave, I mean, not only leave, you know, they stopped doing Mayim before benching, or they started to eat Gebrachts, which many, many wonderful Jews eat Gebrachts. God-fearing Jews eat Gebrachts. I said them don't, but many other Jews do eat Gebrachts. But things that, let's put, call it this way, a little more serious than uh, getting your mat, putting guacamole on your matzah, which in some circles is very serious. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not underestimating it, but in some, you know, much worse. I've spoken to them both um, privately in conventions like Teshenafshi, seminars, workshops, emails, etc. I would say probably 95% of them, maybe 90% of them, have attempted to do exactly what you said. Let's buckle down and follow the Messiah, the tradition. They have all experimented with this. We want the results. We want them to come closer to Judaism and closer to the families, and we love them. And therefore, let's buckle down. Let's tell them the rules of the house. Let's create expectations. Let's say if you want to come home and you want to sleep at home, it's wonderful, but you have to, you must adhere to the laws of our tradition, our Shulchan Aruch. We have Ashkafa, we have Minig. Most of these parents have did this. And what happened? 
I never heard, I never heard, I'm not saying there was no, but I never heard from thousands of cases a success story. What I have heard was their children left them, were alienated and left Judaism and drifted away even further because they were coming for Pesach. They stopped coming for Pesach. They were coming for Sukkot. They stopped coming for Sukkot. They were maybe lighting the Tanaka menorah. They stopped doing that. And that's the reason why thousands and thousands of parents started to ask themselves, maybe there's another path. And the results of the other path, which is more closeness, more attachment, more empathy, more understanding, has resulted at least in most cases in the children becoming closer to their parents, closer to their families, maybe not returning completely to the lifestyle of their parents, although in many cases that too, but perhaps participating in some of the traditions, some of the rituals, preventing many of them from horrible, horrible addictions, saving them from overdose and suicide. And when we talk about results, we have tried both paths very, very successfully. We have we have, I mean, we have tried both past for a consistent amount of time. And we have to be able to look at the data. We have to be able to look at the research. I mean, when I speak about these things, right, I have first spoken to dozens of people who are in the field for decades. An example, somebody you know well, Rabbi Shimon Russell, I asked him directly, I said, could you give me a number of how many teenagers you have met who have left Yiddishkeit? And he told me 10,000. 10,000, because he began practicing as a therapist in Lakewood approximately three and a half decades ago, has done this all day for almost 35 years, continues to do it today in Jerusalem. That's a number to reckon with. I have asked Avi Fischoff, how many kids went by home sweet home? That was a residence that he once had for children who were struggling. He gave me the number. You're talking about thousands of children and then thousands of parents who he deals with today. Etc. Other other therapists, whether in Lakewood or in Muncie or in Israel, that I've spoken to over the years, smaller on a smaller scale or a large therapists who deal with less people or with more people, and they all said the same thing. I asked them for the data, and they all said the same thing. The parents tried biyad chazaka to say these are the rules. This is the mesera. We love you. Shape up or ship out. And in most cases, the situation deteriorated more and more and more and more and more, sometimes to the point of sadly, sadly, and I'm still gonna cry, no return. Sadly, sadly. There's a reason. They're not all, all these people are not evil people who are saying, how can we destroy Judaism for the next generation? How can we make sure that the kids who leave the derrick should never come back? I know what we're gonna do. We're just going to smile and say, you guys are great, and we will ensure that Judaism will be dead forever. Everyone who comes to the Kesher Nafshi conventions, everyone, I can promise you, I, I can say everyone, because I didn't speak to them, but most of them have tried the other method, sometimes for years. And you know where it got them? It got them nowhere. It did get them to a place where their families were destroyed, where their children weren't speaking to them, where they were hearing horrible stories, about their own own children. I'm just going to give you one example. It's a very dramatic one. But this, I, I know the father and I know the daughter, so I'm not saying this from hearsay. I know the people involved. There was a girl, a teenage girl, who unfortunately got involved in, uh, in drugs, basically to numb her pain. And there were a bunch of friends. And Saturday night, Masai Shabbos, they would go to their dealers and stock up for the week. 
her father completely changed his mindset and he developed a very close relationship with this girl. And Matsai Shabbos, he would imagine, it's not, this is not easy to say and not easy to hear. And I also don't like saying it because I know how difficult this is. It's the last thing any father wants to do. His father would take her every Matsai Shabbos in his car, dressed like Chava before the Tree of Knowledge or close to that, and go to this place and pay, pay this man for providing his daughter with the substances, so to speak, she needed for the week, to be able to keep her away from other troubles, but she was home and she was close to him and so forth. A few years later, she went into recovery. She transformed her whole life. And then she told her father these words, and I want you to hear this, coming from a girl. She said, Tati, you were the only father who was willing to pay and take me. None of the other fathers were. You think my friends didn't get the drugs? You think they didn't? I'll tell you what they did. They sold their bodies for prostitution, all of them. And they would provide services. And with that money, they went and buy the drugs. I was the only one who didn't have to do that. Now, you hear such a story. You say, oh, but he bought drugs for his girl. Yeah, he did buy drugs. Is it horrible? It's horrible. You know, Winston Churchill once said, democracy is a horrible form of government, right? It's just the best of all the other ones. What, this, was the, this is sometimes the most painful choice people have to make. Do I have my daughter or my son in my house close to me, not dressed the way they should be dressed, not dressed the way my mother and grandmother and great-grandmother were dressed, but she's not selling her body for promiscuity. And that means there's hope, there's connection. She's gonna get older. She's gonna have resources. She's gonna feel confidence because she feels so much love. And one day maybe she's gonna turn to mommy and Tati say, you know, I need a little help. Could you help me? That's what we're talking about. That's called results. In my world, that's called results. Between selling your body for promiscuity and we know what's the next step after that and having your child at your Shabbos table enjoying your food, and maybe even singing along with your song, even if she's making fun of your religion, I know which results I would want. Okay, what would you answer somebody who said, with response to that, that maybe it's supposed to be the way, maybe we're supposed, this is, this sounds very severe, but like maybe historically, let's go through history, we always lost people, people always left Yiddishkeit, this is not a new, new thing that's happening now, even though we like to think it is. Um, what would you say to them that, you know, maybe it's supposed to be that way. We're not supposed to excellent, drop excellent, our boundaries or, or, or our question. standards. We're supposed to keep our standards. We're now dropping our standards. We're still losing. Yes, yeah, some are coming back. Excellent but question. what's the point? This you is God's what? way. Excellent of, question. Wants. Maybe I shouldn't want it for thousands of years. Who are yeah. we now to change that? This is God's way of culling the herd. Right. And I, I heard a very prominent person say that. He quoted Sukkim from Isaiah. And, and, I, and I just said, it's all very shocking. I know it's a hard question to ask, but. I actually. I have to say, I cherish all these questions. They're, they're very good questions. Maybe that's the Torah path. Maybe the Torah path is to have three kids who left Yiddishkeit, but have another three kids at home. Tell these three kids, this is not your home. If you're ready to do tshuva, come back. This is not your home. Sleep in the subway station. Go find some friends who will celebrate you. Write a book against your religion and against your mother. Tell the world how horrific we all are. And when you're ready to repent, 
and you do it the right way, we'll welcome you back. I have three kids to save. Or maybe a little less, less intense than that. Maybe just, this is our home. You want to behave that way? You could do that over there. Uh, we were still connected. We still come welcome to our home. It's not yeah. all or nothing. I was Even just doing it with a little Rabbi Y.Y. Okay, but okay, <laughs> but I'm saying, but there are people that maybe are listening yes. and saying, well, I don't do that. But then they do say, well, I'm not going to be giving you your monthly um, thing because you're not living the standards that we yeah. want. And not because they're trying to be obnoxious. They generally feel that we have to keep the Maser. This is the educational right. system that the Rebbe Rashab set up. This is the homes that our grandparents went to the, to the, to the death, death camps um, to protect, or, you know, it, it, the, throughout history, you know, all the- Everybody, everybody went to the death camps. Okay, so everybody went to the death camps, the atheists too, let's remember that. Okay, but I'm, saying, I'm just saying not for necessarily only the extreme, extreme situations, but even the, even the lower cases where people are saying, in my home, we dress sneers. In my home, we do this. If you want to do it there, I mean, you're still welcome. You can live. I'll even pay for your apartment. part of this. It's not like you're out of my house and you're living on the streets in Yerushalayim and begging for food. There, there's in between. Yes. To those people, they may be saying that same idea. Beautiful, beautiful question. And there's two parts in. I'm going to want to address them both very briefly. The first question is a Hashkafa question. What does the Torah really believe about this? It's a very legitimate question. And this is where you tell people, let's go back to our Messiah. Go to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. Go to the teachings of the Rebbe Yitzhak of Bardichev. Go to the teachings of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in our most recent generation. And listen to their words. Did they say, that before Mashiach comes, there's going to be a certain amount of our children who we have to get rid of, and they're going to get lost. Or is almost every teaching of theirs literally a battle against that mindset? To quote what I myself heard from the Rebbe maybe hundreds of times, is that the prophet who speaks about the Gula, Yeshaya Hanavi, says, and the Rebbe would quote a Rashi and Parshish Nitzavim with a lot of emotion that Hashem is going to hold each Jew, each Jew by his or her hand and bring them. Every teaching of the Baal Shem Tov almost is saturated with the idea that every single soul ultimately can and will be embraced and rescued. The Rebbe would say thousands of times that in this Geula, nobody is going to be left behind. Nobody should ever be left behind. The whole Chabad movement over the last 70 years, the whole Shlishis movement is predicated on what? Sending the behind for 50 years to some remote community, you'll forgive me, where there's 200 people severed from their immediate family for the rest of their lives. I think I'm speaking to such people. You didn't go to New Zealand, but you went far away from your families. To do what? Why? Why? So that a Jew who may have tattoos from head to toe, may be intermarried, eats pork for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and for shalashudas, shrimp, right? And for malavamalka, lobster. And that Jew, you put a tefillin on him, or she lights Shabbos candles, wow! And then every shlich would write a letter to the Rebbe on Friday, a duch, and say, this Jew, let Shabbos candles, I'm going to take this letter to the, my father-in-law's resting place, and this is what Chabad was celebrating for 70 years. And suddenly, when we use this language with our own children, what's the source? What's the source? Is this Judaism? Really? Oh, it's not Judaism. We don't Wow, amazing. We don't give our children the dignity, <laughs> the honor 
that all of Hasidic and Kabbalistic teachings and really all of Jewish teachings gives every single Jewish soul. Bal Yidach Bimenu Nidach is only, only if you live in Mumbai. And yeah, nobody will be left behind. But if you went to Beisrifka, if you went to a Chabad or a Hasidic or a good yeshiva, if you have parents that are from, you got no place in Klai Yisrael, you shake it. That's, that's, that's our Hashkafa. That's really our Hashkafa. That's what people learn from the Rebbe. I heard hundreds and hundreds of hours of the Rebbe talking face to face. I was one of the people who transcribed the talks. There was not a single talk in which he did not articulate again and again and again. That if you meet a Jew and you don't see their infinite goodness and godliness, you need to go work on yourself. This was a theme over decades. We just didn't take it seriously. So now when people are taking it seriously, they're being rebuked and criticized for taking all of his teaching seriously and applying it not only, not only to Peabody, Massachusetts, and not only to Tokyo, Japan, and not only to Peru or Cancun in Mexico, or some remote village in Ukraine or in Siberia, but we're applying it to our homes in Borough Park or Muncie or Lakewood or Crown Heights or Jerusalem or Stamford Hill or Golders Green or Melbourne or Chicago or Toronto or Pittsburgh. Come on. So tell me, if, tell me if I'm hearing you correctly. Are you saying that our homes and our schools and our mices and our families and the way we interact with our children should look like a Chabad house style? Great, great question. And the answer to that is, the prerequisite of every Shabbat house is love and attachment. I never ever met a Shabbat Shliach or any cure of rabbi or rabbi in the world. Somebody walked into show and they said, hey, 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 it's Shabbos. How do you get here? Get out! Do tshuva, come back. The first approach is what? Wow, thank you for coming. Come join the Kiddush. I am so gracious that you have a place to eat. Why do they do it that way? Because attachment breeds connection, love, and then spiritual growth. That's the key. Of course, our homes are founded on the Messiah of Yiddishkeit, and our parents sacrificed their lives for it. And we want to continue to do that. But if my children are not feeling the attachment, they're not going to be able to hold on to that tradition. So yes, you have to figure out what every child needs but the key is attachment. That's the key. So you say, can I tell a child maybe this home is not, this is how we do things in our home. And if you're not ready for that, I understand, I love you, but you have to do it in another place. If I have an amazing relationship with my child and there's good attachment and having them in another home will foster independence or creativity and will be better, but it's not compromising the attachment, fine, wonderful. The point here is, of course, every child needs their own sensitivity, what's the right thing for them, what's, the, not, what's not the right thing for them. But the key is that if we sever the Judaism from the sense of attachment, it's not going to be successful. We're going to drive them further away and further and further away. And I don't think as real Jews, that is an option for us. And I'll tell you, besides the Hashkafa, let me tell you something. I know parents who have chosen this path and chosen it very aggressively. And you know what? I always tell parents, the pain of having a child who chooses a different value system than yours is deep. It's deep. 
There's a lot of tears and a lot of grief. A lot of grief for the child you imagined you're going to have and for the child I have. But it does not come close to the pain of losing that child for eternity in terms of the relationship. Knowing that this child is out of your life, they're disconnected from you. Yes, your house has integrity. Trust me, that pain is completely a different level of pain. Because you're amputating, you're, 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 you're cutting out a piece of your heart. Before cutting out your heart and sending your heart to live in another house, be very, very, very careful. Be very, very, very cautious. If the heart wants to live in another house and it's going to remain a good heart and it's better for the heart, but just be very careful. These decisions should not be coming from ego, from impulsiveness, from anger, from resentment, from trying to impress my neighbors or my in-laws. These decisions must come from a very deep place of connection. So let me ask you a question. You know, my desire is to go in the path of emotion and say, okay, my brain understands it, but my heart is struggling with it. But I think we just addressed that. So let me let me put on the cerebral hat for a second and say, so what does Yiddishkeit look like in 10 years, five years, 20 years? I mean, Michelle will be here, but Hashem. But if he doesn't, where's this going to go? What is this going to look like? In, in We're going to have the... Uh, Yiddish, Excellent. Yiddishkeit is going to be amazing. Don't you realize what's happening? What's happening is the entire youth is saying, Tati, Mami, Bobby, Zaidi, give me a Yiddishkeit that is purged from corruption, from hypocrisy, from superficiality, from stupidity, from superstition, from abuse, from molestation, from addiction, from leadership. Yeah that is completely, completely clueless and detached from the conditions of people. Give me a Yiddishkeit that embraces the full spectrum of the human experience. Give me a Yiddishkeit that allows me to celebrate my soul, my heart, my body, my mind, my God, my world, my existence. That's because really- it's more comfortable, yeah. And we are all given an opportunity. If I could speak to both of you, how much inner work did you both do in the last five or ten years emotional psychological work and whose credit is that my child it's not a question what would have happened what would have happened if each one of your children would be put on a conveyor belt at age three and you wouldn't hear from them until after they're married and have a few children you emotionally have a lot more time (laughs) (laughs) that's besides the point no of course but but you're saying it's going to look more authentic and more and more spiritual more yeah but you know what else it looks like it looks immodest and it looks um it, it looks not within the, the it's not it's not sneeze it's not it's not i can go on and on i, I want to add to that because you you pulled a rabbi why why you pulled a, a a dozen adjectives and no one can argue with that but the but at the same time you know and i'm not the old-fashioned guy here i'm i'm the the you know the, the the you're the, 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 the left-wing liberal. I, I, exactly, I'm the I'm the liberal thinker, but but I want there to be a base madrash. Even even if my kids are not in it, I want there to be a base madrash. I want there to be a masifta. I want some of those things to still exist. Are you saying the institutions have to be torn down so that you can rebuild them correctly? Chas how does, so how does this look? Chas, chas how do I get to that authentic, beautiful? It it really depends how we see Judaism. Are we insecure about Judaism or are we secure about Judaism?
Thank you so much for listening. We're going to take a quick break here for a message from our sponsor, okclarity.com. Okclarity.com is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find a top-notch therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free. And their professionals are vetted and they have extensive experience working within the Jewish community. So if you're in the market for a therapist or coach, check them out at okclarity.com. If you yourself are a provider and you're looking to list yourself, check out okclarity.com. I know that I've been recently listed, listed as a coach on OK Clarity as well. Also, if you're interested, OK Clarity has an amazing WhatsApp status or group with thousands of followers and their whatsapp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor so you're going to laugh too so if you have whatsapp shoot them a message and you can be added as well it's in my show notes as well so check out okclarity.com you know that you won't regret it you know let's talk about science or physics just as an example Real science doesn't have to be insecure about science the laws of gravity are not afraid that somebody's going to destroy the laws of gravity. You know why? <laughs> why are they not afraid that Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson or Shimon Russell or Chase Taub or Avi Fischer or any other heretic are going <laughs> to get up and give this powerful, we're going to do a summit and we're all together going to destroy the laws of gravity. We're also going to destroy how the electrons in the atoms function. We're just going to destroy it through the gift of gab and through malicious, poisonous, left-wing, liberal, TikTok, Joe Biden or no Joe Biden rhetoric. <laughs> nobody's afraid of that. You know why? Because nobody's destroying the laws of gravity. It's really an insecurity we have about Judaism. I'm afraid to say Judaism for many of us is a messiah. It's a tradition. It's not organic. It's not organic. It's not God's blueprint for life. It's not the laws of gravity. But the whole Kabbalistic and Hasidic approach to Judaism is the exact opposite. Judaism is reality. I'm not going to destroy the laws of nutrition. No lecture that Rabbi Y.Y. gives, as talented as he may be, and he may be talented or not, is ever going to destroy the fact that if I'm eating in the morning a lot of carbs and a lot, a lot of sugar, <laughs> I'm going to be in a bad mood. You know why? Because the body is going to protest it. Sneas, Shabbos, Kashrus, Limud HaTorah, Tefillah, mitzvahs, the whole body of Judaism. This is, this is like the foundation of all Kabbalistic and Hasidic teachings is the organic essential system of the universe. When we peel away the layers, when we remove the toxicity, when we allow people to shine, these are the places we want to hang out in. The Rebbe once wrote to somebody in a letter, listen to this, an amazing letter. He wrote, if we had all the wisdom and time in the world and we would study human nature and chemistry and physics perfectly, we ourselves would prescribe the 613 mitzvahs for the Jewish people. You understand what he said? If you knew the science, if I knew everything about my body and my brain and my neurons and my chemicals and my DNA, everything, I would write, you know, a to-do list. My to-do list would be 613 mitzvahs. I don't. So organically, I don't say in the morning, I need to put on tefillin. I do say I want to brush my teeth because my breath is bad. But my spiritual breath also needs help. So the more, the more we peel, Judaism is not insecure. It's like the laws of gravity. We don't have to protect it. We don't have to preserve it. We need to be worthy. We need to be open to feel the energy. The moment we feel the energy, everybody's in. Everybody's in. Now, of course, if somebody has a child, 
who's celebrating the yeshiva life and is steiging and learning, of course, that's our greatest joy and ecstasy in the world. Of course, we want to encourage it and inspire it. The point is when we have children who the system is failing them, and not because of one person's bad, malicious intent, but because for whatever reason, internal or external, they're not feeling the connection. They're not getting what they need, never mind if something actually happened to them, whether abuse or bullying, et cetera. But even if not, so then we have to realize that this is a very serious crisis. And if we abandon them, and if we blame them, instead of understanding what happened, then we are failing our responsibility as the transmitters of the Messiah. I, I want to interrupt you. I want to interrupt you because I think you, the, the way you phrase something, I think might get to the core of what agitates, not, not myself, but, men, but many others. The system failed them. Can't it just be that they don't fit in the system and they were not molested and they were not harmed and they just don't fit in the system and the system is still fine, quote unquote, and it just, it's not working for them. It, it, is is there is that is that a possibility that it's, the system it's, didn't fail again, them? It's, it's a wonderful question, and for this I quote Winston Churchill, who was the master of prose, and he said, "We create institutions to facilitate our dreams, and then we become prisoners to those institutions." Which means, the point of systems is to serve the people. The people are not working. The system. So it's the question of how you define the system. You're right. If you define the system as an absolute reality, and our children are here to serve the system, I can't disagree. But I I think that's a very very corrupt definition of any system, any system of government, and any system of education, and any system of of, of anything. The point of the system is to serve the people. Let's remember what's the means and what's the end. Now it's fair to say that a school says. I can only deal with certain models. That's fine. And therefore, I will not be able to serve you and I'm going to fail you. And I should be honest about that. But we have to be very introspective and honest because we want to be able to be here for everyone. We sometimes can't, but at least we should be honest about what the needs are and stop blaming them and looking inside of us. And so on, a very, on a very technical level, does that mean that you know what Shimon Russell calls the autopilot children, they will have their yeshivas and the, the more edgy artsy children will have their yeshivas and the kids who have been molested and abused and broken will have their, I don't know, yeshivas or, or, or other. Is that how this is gonna, we're, we're gonna kind of have to sift through and let everyone go in the direction that is working for them? Um. I'll tell you an experiment that's being done right here in Muncie. And that is, there's a, an exceptional, exceptional woman. Her name is Mora Yelit Nadav. And she told me directly, she's a gifted, gifted educator. She told me she's been teaching for decades in different schools in Muncie. And she said, I was watching children in first, second, third grade. And to myself, I was making predictions this child will not continue after elementary school. This child will drop out after the first year of high school, second year of high school. And she said, 10 years later, every prediction was right. So she went to many schools and said, for all these kids, I wanna make a separate program, an enrichment program. Some of the schools told her, we don't have this problem. <laughs> we don't have this issue. Others said, we can't afford it. Others said, we're already doing it. And she actually went to one school 
And they said, absolutely. And last year she created this enrichment program. And my son, my youngest, my baby, my, my youngest boy, I sent into her program. And I have to say, a lifesaver, a lifesaver. This was an example within the system of a school. She created a program. Now, between you and I, when I see how she runs the classes, I say all the classes should run like this because they're all based on relationships. They're all based on empowering the children. They're very, very much based on what Hasidus calls Isarusa de Lasata, which means an arousal from below. You are, you are a partner. You are an initiator. You are a dreamer. It's very well adjusted to the nature of the child. And the child is spoken to, not spoken at. And it's also not trying to impose things on the child. It's trying to help the child open himself up to his curiosity and his thirst for learning. Yes, you have to challenge, you want to challenge the child, sometimes you have to discipline and there's rules, et cetera, but it's all in a way that the child appreciates the growth. It's incredible. So this is literally a model that she created here. And I spoke to her just two days ago, I went to visit the school and uh, I asked her, you must, I said, you must be inundated with, 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 with hundreds and hundreds of calls and she says, no, <laughs> that's so interesting. I'm like, aren't there parents reaching out to you? She says, a few. I said, why? She says, a lot of people are afraid of stigma. I was shocked. I'm like, stigma? I look at you and I say, thank God that you are here. I'll publicize it in the whole world. I just don't want to, I want my child to have a place in your school. So I don't want to publicize it too much. <laughs> so... You know, I really, I really think that we often underestimate how much healing we still need as a community. How much healing, how much authenticity. Um, you know, I always tell parents and educators, and I tell this to myself, when somebody criticizes you, before you respond, be curious as to why you are internally responding the way you're responding, because that will help you grow a lot. If my daughter or my son tells me something and inside, I become like a raging tsunami, even though I know how to repress it. I come from Russian stock. We know how to deal with emotional constipation. We're good <laughs> at it. We have hundreds of years of training and Stalin really fine-tuned the skill to a point of perfection. But if inside I am raging like a lunatic, ready to break windows and punch noses, the most healthy thing I could do is curiosity. What just happened? such an opportunity for growth. Instead, many of us, we either run to our bedrooms because we're nice, we don't want confrontation. <laughs> we run to our bedrooms, right? We run out of the house. We start screaming about God, Messiah, Hashkafa. We become defensive. And instead of building the relationship, we, we, we detach even more. There's such an opportunity now for healing, for growth. The, the Alter Rebbe once said, I, I, probably the best way to sum it up, you know, <laughs> the Alter Rebbe once said, the Balatanya, one of the better lines ever said, if I could say so. He said, Tamuru kitoiv Hashem, vetizen, as the Ebrishter is good, according to Hillam, taste and you will see that God is good. Which means, if in my imagination, God is evil and sinister, it may be justified for certain reasons and experiences, sadly, but it means I still haven't touched the truth. The moment we are fighting with each other, what's right, what's wrong, 
what's right for my children, what's wrong for my children. I think we're, we're in the wrong place. We don't want to be in a place of confrontation. We don't want to be in a place of judgment. It's more if you could connect to the opportunities that exist when there's deep empathy and compassion and attachment and curiosity and growth, you will right away see that your Judaism will become so much more sincere, so much more authentic. On the contrary, the previous generations will turn to our generation and ask us, what did you guys do that was so right? It, it, it's just so fascinating because I'll just say, we drank the Kool-Aid, if, if that's how people want to look at it. And, and on something that's so central and essential to everything that we're doing, Yiddishkeit, children, raising children, this, those, that last little um, tear that you went on, to some is like beautiful, brilliance. And to others, it's like, this guy needs to be, you know, excommunicated because it's so new agey and it's so, so it, it's like, it's so contrary to the, to the doctrines of, of, what, of what we know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, there's no question there. It's more of a, it's an emotion that's falling out of me. How, how the very same thing could be so beautiful to some and to others but it could be can't. so horrible to you others. You know what? You know what? You know what? Maybe I shouldn't be the one saying it, but maybe I should be the one saying it. Maybe it's not so bad that we have this opposition. Maybe it's not so bad. Even though I'm the one who, who is the target of much of it in emails and backlashes, but maybe it's not so bad for two reasons. First of all, it opposition is not fun, but it challenges us to work on ourselves. It challenges us not to become egotistical, not to become judgmental. It's very good for a teacher, for a father, for a Rebbe, for anybody to say, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you have to rethink this. Well, the whole Gemara is based on that. So maybe in a way it's very helpful, <laughs> number one. And number two, I think it's so important to realize that everybody's on a journey. And often the opposition is also a result from very, very deep need for survival. <laughs> People need to survive. Uh, uh, a person wrote me an email, he's been coming to my classes in Hasidus for quite a few years. And he told his Rosh Hashiva that he started to learn the Kutta Torah by the Balatanis. Rosh Hashiva's in his 80s. So he writes to him, if you're already adding a shear, why in that? Why don't you add a shear in Gemara, in Mishnah Brura? So this man, who's already 70, writes to me and he's alarmed. Why, why would his Rosh Hashiva not celebrate it? So I told him, your Rosh Hashiva is almost 90, Baruch Hashem, okay? If he celebrates the fact that you started to learn the Kutatera by the Balatanya, what is that saying about him? That means that for almost 90 years, he was ignorant to a part of Judaism that he never really learned. <laughs> that means for 90 years, he's learning and he's a big Talmud Chachem and this whole part of Judaism, he never explored that. What do you want from him? Like, you want him to say, yeah, that's a great sheer, there's unbelievable depth. That means he also has to start learning. He never learned it in his life. Maybe he heard the name. Maybe he heard somebody make fun of Chabad. I mean, that, that's as far as his education goes in terms of, of the Alter Rebbe's, uh, uh, you know, infinite wisdom. So I said, of course he has to tell you, go learn Mr. Brura. That's his, I think we have to also empathize with that. Absolutely. You understand somebody who's 65 years old, right? 
there's just survival. There's this what always what the, the right thing. And, and the it also I'm, means for some people that like what? So I'm 65 and I'm I've been in Khinaf or whatever it is and I've been doing it all wrong or I have to change now. Like exactly. it's 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 exactly. a very it's a very it's a very hard I have to be able thing. to I have to be able to respect that. And yeah. I see it inside of me. Yeah. There were certain yes. things I maintained years ago and I had to transform myself and not because I jumped into it. Life I wanna... circumstances humbles us all. <clears throat> and you know what? I sometimes tell people, I hope you will never have to experience anything yeah, that's a... that some of these parents experience and you won't have to change. You know what? It's a blessing. I bless you. I bless you. You should be able to remain where you are. And you know what? I'm not jealous. You have your journey. I want to ask you one more thing. I'm going to talk for myself. I know all this. I know this to be true. I'm living it. I'm practicing it. And yet there are still times where those voices of you should do it. You're lowering your standards. You, you, what do you, you're, 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 you're not holding any, any standards at all. You don't have, you're coddling all the things, all those voices or, or even that accountability. But, oh, accountability is a or, big one. Or I'm handicapping you for life. You're never going to have the ability to be resilient. You're never going to be able to hold down a job because I'm being so nice to you. Or, or I'm getting you everything that you want. Um, but I find, and I know that there, a lot of these voices are coming from a place of fear. They're, they're coming from a place of fear. I want to show up in a calm way. I want to show up in, the question is, how do we stay focused on the fact that we know Hashem, that every child is a piece of Hashem? And we know this, our heart is telling us, but at the same time, we're looking at something that's so uncomfortable to look at. You're looking at your child who's dressed not sneistic. You're seeing something that's, it literally pulls at your heartstrings. Your child's being Michal Shabbos. From the smallest thing to, to the greatest thing, to wearing jeans. For some people, it may be that their child's wearing jeans. Oh, how I, that, that would be a dream. Amen, amen. <laughs> but but for, for them, that's their real, that is, it, that is painful it, for them. It. It's really painful. They heard, they hear their mother's voice in their head saying, I have now, to say this. I we don't wear jeans in this house. A, a, we father came, wait, a father came to me, crisis. So what's the crisis? He said, his son, he's a Hasidic guy. He's from one of the Hasidic movement. He does, he saw that in work, he doesn't always wear a white shirt. He puts on a blue shirt and he comes to me advice how to deal with it anyway go ahead i'm sorry yes no no no. so so i'm not and i'm not even laughing at that i i i hear it because in everyone it's their own way you know it could be from something as small as your child telling you that they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend to something as small as um they they want to wear jean pants or a piercing piercing in, in, in a part of their body that they don't want even though i know the right thing to do and i do the right thing not always is my heart aligned with right. my action. And my question is, is what would you tell parents that are doing this and are practicing it? How can they, it, yeah. how do they tap into that part of themselves to continue doing the right thing, even if that's happening and they shouldn't yeah. self-load because of it, because of it, and they should continue doing what they're doing and they yeah. should stay like, what, what kind of physic could you give them to continue doing this? Even though those, those thoughts and feelings Excellent. are right there. One, wonderful question. Wonderful. Wow. Thank you for asking it. First and foremost, we all must have an emotional support system. It's critical. Mothers and fathers. First and foremost, the marriage. A marriage in these situations has to become much stronger, much deeper. We can't rely on the conventional marriage. Of course, we like each other. You know, we get along. We don't throw rocks at each other. We don't holler in the house. That's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. It's too much, too much. 
father and mother must be able to create a fortress together. Together, when they're holding on together, when they're holding on to each other emotionally and physically and psychologically, even if the hard ball comes, and the hard ball is going to come, it's not going to be a soft ball, they'll be able to catch it. And it'll be fine. If the marriage has cracks, it becomes so much more difficult. And that means on a very practical level, couples have to spend time with each other, work through their differences, be able to cry about this to each other, and then they'll be able to laugh. But they have to be able not to judge each other. Not the husband telling the wife, oh, you're so alarming, and then you're, 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 you're the problem, and then and you're overwhelming me. We have, it's not going to work. <laughs> we really have to be able to be here for each other, husbands and wives, respect each other's emotions and journeys and grief. That, that's number one. There has to be emotion, but not just the spouses. Everyone needs emotions, but whether it's a good friend, whether it's family, sometimes it can't be family, but it's, it's friend, it's a mentor, it's a therapist, it's a rabbi, it's a rabbi. It's a, we must have emotional support. We need a few people in our lives whom we trust, who get it, who want to see us fly and want our children to fly. They're not busy criticizing us and judging us. Unfortunately, it's not always immediate family. Sometimes it is, depends on the nature of the family. But this is very, very, well. that's number one. Number two, it's extremely important to have a very, very deep relationship with yourself which means a very deep relationship with God. It's so important. You have to work on yourself every day. I think such parents, all of us really, you need to maybe wake up earlier or go to sleep a little and spend time. We need time for meditation, for davening, for learning, for exercise, for self-nurture, for self-compassion, um, journaling, dancing, swimming, massages, whatever, yoga, Pilates, physical, <laughs> psychological, emotional, spiritual, each one according to, to their needs. But it's very important to be able to nurture your mind, to be able to be open, to be able to process your emotions. Because if, you, if I'm not in that place, if I'm not anchored in a godly centered place, I will be destroyed. And when the parent becomes destroyed in the process, it's not good for them, it's not good for the children. And the third thing, and this is also very, very important. Real people are always open to growth. Real people are always ready to say, you know what? Yes, maybe I should change something and that will give my children more resilience. This is not about, we go into a place, oh, we're loving and we judge the rest of the world that's not so loving. And then, oh, my kids are not resilient. You know what? We're all working practice. We all want to learn, but we want to learn from people Number one, who have experience. Number two, people who will empower us and help us, not people who are going to judge us and demonize us and make us more estranged from our children. So we all want to learn. We all want to grow. We all have areas where we are deficient, and our children pick that up and are, of course, responding to it. The last thing I would say is, as we say in English, the old saying, the proof is in the pudding. If this exhausted mother or father, filled with fear and getting criticism, sees your child is healthier today than they were a year ago. Instead of coming down to the kitchen and saying, F you, 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 they come down. And when you say, Hey, Dvairi, Chaya, Levi, Yanko, I bought sushi for you. I bought your favorite milkshake. And they say, Thank you. And they go back to their bedroom to drink it. That's progress. Be proud of it. 
Give yourself a standing ovation. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. The sacrifices of these parents are keeping their children home. They're keeping their children in a more safe place. These children are more protected physically and emotionally. These children are off drugs. These children are, 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 are less on drugs. These children are not overdosing. These children are in healthier, healthier places. That is a momentous cause for celebration and success. Now think about the alternative. If we would surrender to fear and we would sever that relationship with our kids to protect our other kids, what would our nights look like? Would we be more calm? Would we be more serene? So it's very important for every parent to tune in and to celebrate every day those small gestures and behaviors and patterns and changes that are allowing our children Hashem, to slowly heal and heal more and heal more and gain a certain confidence where they themselves will feel that they could be healthy. And the moment they feel that, they will want to be healthy. You want to be healthy. You want to be healthy. I want to be healthy. You know why? Because we feel that we can. The moment our children will feel that they can, they will want to. Yeah. Okay. One last question, since I want to respect your time. What is something that you thought you knew really well, you were definitely sure about, um, with regard to anything that you've talked about over the years, that after years of life experience, life, marriage, children, parenting, teaching, whatever it may be, that you've changed your opinion on? Yeah. So one thing that stands out in my mind, I'm not going to say I changed my opinion, but I never realized the importance of it. And that is, I never realized the importance of attachment between children and their caregivers at the youngest age. I thought that intellectual creativity and accomplishment and doing the right thing and being productive can compensate for that. And I realized from a lot of life experience and relationships and my own life, how what a mistake that is. Attachment, 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 attachment is the key. Can I you explain what you mean by intellectual? Can you explain that, like what you mean by the intellectual? What, yeah, is that, what does yeah. that mean? Yeah, I think many of us as children, we did not get the healthy attachment we needed. We may have gotten unstable attachment. We may have gotten avoidant attachment. We may have gotten attachment or no attachment or a wounded attachment. We compensate. We compensate for the love by getting validation. So I may become an unbelievable student in school. I may become an unbelievable troublemaker in school. I may go to make a lot of money. I may become a great teacher or rabbi. And those of us who are blessed with gifts, we zoom in on those gifts and it compensates for the love we did not get and for the inner core that's wounded. I never realized that with such clarity. But today it's very, very clear to me that attachment is the key of everything. It's the core of everything. It's the core of every healthy relationship. It's the core of every healthy lifestyle, the core of confidence. When there is attachment, in other words, my core was formed with love. I feel loved. I feel valued. I feel that I was seen, soothed, safe, and secure, the four S's. I can grow up to be a person whose talents and success comes from the inside out rather than comes as a compensation because there's no inside. So it comes from the outside in. And that's really the difference. 
without attachment, I try to gain validation from the outside. And then I convince myself that I'm a valuable person. With attachment, I'm a valuable person inside. I don't need anybody's validation. I may want to give the world. I want to give the world my light. So now some of us have not gotten that attachment. And I think it's so important to be aware of that wound and be able to work with that. Like David Amalek says in, in Tehillim in Psalms 27, my father and mother have neglected me and God took me in. So he was aware of the fact that he needed to reinvent himself and rediscover that attachment with people later on in life, first and foremost with himself and with God, with Hashem, to be able to experience that. Because without that, my relationships with life are based on deep, deep wounds and trying to compensate. Now, from a secular, evolutionary, psychological perspective, it's because when we were hunters and foragers or apes, we needed to be together. We needed attachment. If not, the lion would mold me. From a, from a Jewish perspective, it's much, much deeper. It's because we are attached. <laughs> We're all one. We come from oneness. So our fathers and mothers don't own us, but they model to us what it means that we're one. The world is one. We come from Hashem Echad. We are all manifestations of oneness. So attachment is the most innate quality of human existence. We are essentially attached. And we can only be independent and we can only be individuated when we have healthy attachment. If I don't have healthy attachment, I never become an individual because I'm just looking to find out who I am. And I need the world to validate me. On a, on a most, something I had to grow into. On a most practical level, if I'm understanding you correctly, that means celebrate our children not because of anything they've done or any accomplishments. Yeah. You know, if a, if it looks like a child is languishing, yeah. figure out how to celebrate them yeah. despite what seems like their failure to thrive. Yeah, and, and that's at older age and little kids, of course, yeah. just play games with them. I even. think it's also as adults in terms of our own relationships. I would say that one of the, the deepest issues in marriages is that we are not identifying the core problem. In other words, when husbands and wives get upset at each other or they don't feel they can trust each other, they blame it. You know, you're always late. You're not taking care of the house. You're not responsible. Those are all just smoke screens. What we really want to address is our, our attachment needs being met. Because when that's really, really addressed, I think we see what we really are looking for in our relationships. I need to feel that attachment. You need to feel that attachment. And when that's experienced, almost I find that so many things just flow, flow from that. So it's, 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 it's a very primal, it, it's not a sophisticated conversation. It's really not sophisticated. I, I grew up in a sophisticated home. I grew up in a pretty sophisticated culture, relatively speaking. And, uh, and, I always gave too much credit to sophistication and, and brilliance and wisdom. Uh, somebody once wrote, I think, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care, right? So it was a good cliche, and I said it in many lectures, and it's a nice line. But to really understand that Reish is Hashem, that all wisdom and brilliant sophistication is almost meaningless if it's not rooted in real, authentic attachment and love. And if not, we're just like artificial intelligence and much worse than artificial intelligence. So, so yeah, many of us 
I think we have become artificial intelligence. You know, we're very intelligent, but the computers are much better. Let's face it. Let's just, let's just give life to them. They'll do a better job. What artificial intelligence doesn't have is the ability to look into my eyes and see my pain and say, I am so sorry. Artificial intelligence cannot do that. You can cut this out, but, but I have to ask you, would, would you not say that, again, it, this could have been done in a kinder, more attached kind of way, but had you not been pushed in the way that you've been pushed, look at what you've accomplished, being, being a Pfizer for so many years, your brother, you know, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm talking about you because I'm talking to you, but so many great people, they arrived at their greatness because they were pushed and not always with such love. Had there been so much love, they may not, they may have gone the softer, lighter, easier. You don't have to cut this out. This is, this is a very, very legitimate and beautiful. I didn't hear him say about anything about pushing. I thought he was saying more about celebrating, like don't only celebrate. I mean, but but sometimes it's the, 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 if you give the softer, lighter road out, the kids will take the off ramp and say, yeah, I really don't want to kill myself right now. It's a, the, the truth is that, you know, a lot of the hardships in life, I don't think any one of us can protect our children from. Things happen, unfortunately. We try and try and try and try. You know, I know somebody, they were so conscious of the issue of child molestation because of their education, and they made sure to educate their children. And they protected them, and everything was so protective, and, you know, babysitters and and counselors and rebbies and teachers, you know, it turns out that it happened to their children from within the family itself, from people you would never expect, you know, grand grandparents, grandparents, you understand? So they're giving their children to babysit by their grandparents, and, and this is what happens. So you got to sit back and say, <laughs> there's a different plan here that's beyond beyond but i think that's a different question that it's a different question that nechem is asking he's asking a little bit deeper and i I don't know if it's that it's not softer because i don't think we're promoting softness i think we're promoting love and attachment it's it's a very different thing i mean at least that's what i'm hearing i I just feel like we're not soft we're just taught we're we're Mm -hmm. talking about being connected more and being attached more and then and celebrating wherever they're at meeting them where they're at and then excellent excellent you have a smart wife (laughs) and very articulate and then they can deal with the hard balls and then they can deal with the hard balls it's exact the opposite the whole idea of attachment which is theories of john bowlby's sue johnson is the more children experience attachment when they're young the more they can be detached and independent when they're old (laughs) they can actually become adults you can actually tell them, stop being a baby. And you know what? They won't be a baby. But if you always told me, stop being a baby, even when I was a baby, I will always be a baby. And we see it constantly. We're still babies, 60 years old. I'm still a baby. And you could scream at me, stop being a baby. Because I was never a baby. I was never a baby. And if somebody was not a baby, it's not good. We need babies. Al tigui b'meshichai. The Gemara says, So, you know, that's why the, the Rabbi Sachs used to always say, it was a very good line. He said, the first thing the Torah says is not good. You would think, what's the Torah keeps on saying that the world is good. Hashem saw the world is good and Adam is good and everything is good in the beginning of creation. And then it finally says, not good. What? So you would think maybe idolatry or adultery or sin. 
But that's not the first not good. The first loy toiv is loy toiv hayoyis ha'odam levadai. That's the, it's fascinating. The first time Torah says it's not good, it's not good for Adam to be alone. That means that that is at the core of all not goodness. And by oh, the way, yes. Bnei Yisachar writes, he was a great Hasidic master. He says, very interesting, he says the first time a word is used in the Torah, it's the mother of all those words, of that word that will be used ever again. He said that in your class this week. I was class. listening. Yeah, so he says it on the word taif. So I just thought it's also true about light taif. So the first time the Torah says something is not good, it's the mother of all not goodness in the whole Torah. But you're not t- translating it as marriage, you're tra- translating it as loneliness. Levadai, the word levadai means alone. That's what it means. I'm not translating it. No, no I'm saying, but like that, that pasuk is referring in, in marriage. Therefore, Adam needs, needs, needs a spouse. But the point here is, that what does the Torah see as the mother of all the problems, of everything not good in the world? Not sin, not promiscuity, a lack of attachment, solitariness, loneliness. Today they figured out that the antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. There's a whole major research done with rats, incredible research, it's not for now, but brilliant research from a psychologist in Sweden. It, it's, it's incredible. That's why when my 86-year-old grandmother gets morphine for four weeks in the hospital because she broke her, her knee or needs hip replacement, she's not an addiction an addict to cocaine because she has 39 grandkids jumping on her when she comes home from the hospital. So the antithesis of addiction is, is connection, attachment. And it's within that attachment that all growth happens, including moral and spiritual growth. The rat park, it's a, it's a fascinating study. Yeah. So well, I, think, I think for many years, we thought we could communicate Judaism with detachment. And we said, you know, let the brain rule the heart, uh, just be a soldier, follow we'll, the tradition. We'll beat it into you. We'll beat it into you and it'll, it'll produce much better results. And you know what? The truth is hammers are much more compliant than children. I mean, nails are more compliant. <laughs> So there's an advantage. If you could turn your child into a nail, you can build every sukkah with him and it's beautiful. And he'll become a star of your system, whatever your system is. We don't make nails. <laughs> but, 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 no, you get my point. That's what we, that's yes. what we and p- part, of, part of us still says that. He's a nail. She's a nail. Beat the truth into them. And then they'll beat this truth into their children. And you know what? Sometimes it works. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I, I think the I think the reason why why we're tempted to go that way is because it did work for a lot of years. It just doesn't work anymore. Works for some people. You could even see some people. You look at them, but you don't know the the, the proof isn't in the funding because no, we don't no, know the I, results. No, but... I don't mean now. I mean I mean let's go back. You know before the war. Historically, well before the war, more than fifty percent of the Jewish people drifted away from Judaism. Right. That that's the fact that most Jews are secular today is not since nineteen sixty six. <laughs> it's not since 1963 when Kennedy was assassinated or Martin Luther King was assassinated or not since 1969 Woodstock. Didn't it begin the Enlightenment? The huh? The scholar movement. Didn't it start with the Enlightenment? And much more. It started in the 18th century, but it continued in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century before the Holocaust. Half of the Jewish people have drifted away from Judaism in some places, more than half. Those are mind-staggering numbers. That means if you had a family of two children 
or four That's children, one. two of them would have drifted away and maybe more. In, in some cases, in Russia was more, in Lithuania was more, right? In, in, in America was, it was much more. So I'm saying 50%, it's, it's, not, it's not even an accurate number. So let's understand that. <laughs> let's understand. It, so, so you're saying it, it didn't really work out quite that well. It's just the Holocaust was so catastrophic, nobody even spoke about it. We didn't have anybody to talk to. Everybody was just murdered. A third of the Jewish people were murdered. But we have to understand Judaism has been facing a fundamental existential crisis on so many levels. The Holocaust overshadowed everything else because we were being gassed. You know, We were not asked to be secular. We were not asked to eat pork. We were told to be, we were sent to the gas chamber. So once that happens, you know, what are you going to talk about? You know, you're going to yeshiva, are you going to college, right? You're going to the gas chambers. We were going to the gas chambers. So it's just very important to understand that we went through an existential crisis already a few hundred years ago. Essentially, one of the fascinating things is the date of enlightenment officially, which begins in England, is 1698. And that's the year the Baal Shem Tov is born. Now, the Baal Shem Tov is born in Ukraine, far, far away from the enlightenment. Right, the industrial mom, revolution. It's not hard to see that this was literally the divine gift that was given to the Jewish people in the world in response to the Enlightenment. Because what the Baal Shem Tev did was, he says, we're now going to articulate a much deeper, more sophisticated dimension of Judaism, which will actually show that Judaism is organic and holistic, and wherever the Enlightenment takes us, Judaism will survive and thrive. We're, I'm, we're, not worried, we're, I'm really not worried about Judaism. I'm so not worried about Judaism. No, either am I. It's I like Kare well, tried and Haman tried and Hitler tried, and they all tried. Like that doesn't keep me, me up. That doesn't keep me up at night. Trust me, uh, some Jewish lecturer telling you to love your kids <laughs> is not going to obliterate three and a half thousand years of Judaism. I promise you. Sarah Morozov said something to raise on one of her podcasts. I thought, I thought it was fascinating. And you, um, I'd love it if you could confirm it. it. It sounds like you were basically saying that. She was saying that really historically, people have been leaving the fold all the, the throughout history. She says the only time that we have an exception to that is really almost exactly the years of the Rebbe's Messias. You know, well, that so, was in Chabad. Yeah, she, 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 she was talking about specifically. She, she was talking within Chabad, in, in the world of Chabad, because the Alter Rebbe had it in the, and the and the Tzemach Tzaddik dealt within the free. She says, during the Rebbe's Nasius, there was like a, a, a good run of about 50, 60 years where you had Mitasi Shleim, where you had wow. both families, everyone stayed in the fold. Not always, and, there was not. But it was, it was a very, very... Wow. And she said that, I don't know if she... I, I thought that was fascinating. Does, does that resonate? She actually added to that that it was um, actually, she said, I don't remember what it was based on, but something to the effect of that it was like a um, nechama for the Holocaust, that the generation after the Holocaust, that their children stayed um, in the way of Yiddishkeit, and it was a nechama for those people that had survived what they survived, their children, but the following generation, the trauma continued. Wow, very, very, very beautiful and creative idea. It also could be the schus of the Rebbe. You know how Rajiv B'Pshim Ben Yechai said, that in his generation, there would be no rainbow. Right. Because his schus would protect the world. It could be that the Rebbe's merit and his presence was such a, a, a light that it was extremely healing for people, even subconsciously. Sure. Subconsciously, they didn't need the, the need to, 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 to run. It's very but possible. That, it's that, the epigenetics could get in the way. Insight. Fascinating so, insight. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. And I really, really appreciate 
you coming on here and sharing your wisdom with all of us and um, even letting me push back and, and ask questions that were hard questions. And I, and I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for all the amazing podcasts you do and for being a source of light and hope and healing and love to so many people. Same for you. With your own family. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. You know, I, 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 I will just leave everybody with this point, which I think is, it's meaningful to me. One of, we spoke before about litmus tests. You know, one of the litmus tests generally, if we are in a right path is, I always say humility. People who are ready to grow, people who say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I made some serious mistakes and I would like to learn about it. And if it resonates and if it's empowering and if it's helping my family, I'm really ready to do things differently. That's, that's a sign of real, real spiritual connection. When somebody has nothing of that, all they could say is, this is the way it is. And there's no reason for you to talk to me because I'm never changing my mind, never changing my mind. And then they blame religion and Judaism and God and Tyra and their Rebbe for that. Right away, <laughs> this just smells with, with an arrogance and an haughtiness. Is there any truth that you don't know? Is it possible that there's something new to learn? Like, did the Rebbe really teach you everything there is to know about life and about the brain? It's like, imagine a doctor tells you, Everything there is to know about medicine, I know. A therapist tells you everything there is to know about emotions, I know. A scientist tells you everything there is to know about the world, I know. You run away from these people. Forgive me to say, with religion, it's exactly the same thing. When somebody tells me everything there is to know about truth, about education, about the future, I know. Really? I'm sorry. Well, I don't, so... <laughs> you know, I, I, think, I think life will humble everybody. At, at some point or another until they're it should like be, it should be their revealed knees. life humbles everybody but it should be only through revealed goodness no, but, me, but i think the trick is to to not wait for life to humble if you can get the memo to become humble without life crushing you it's very then, hard th 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 then you win it's very that's, hard there's a the sicha, there's a talk from the rebbe rashab the fifth lubavitcher rebbe in his sefer Torah shalom he has a line in yiddish he says he says, life breaks all people. What do you have to wait? Just humble yourself. yourself, work on yourself. There was another man, Lahavdil, his name was Hemingway. And he <laughs> said, life breaks all people. And then some people know how to live in broken places better than others. He didn't. He shot himself. But... Uh, I think, you know, in Judaism, we learned that every brokenness is just an opportunity to create a deeper form of wholeness. I was waiting for you we to say your line. to do that. Huh? I was waiting for you to say your line. That it's through the cracks that the light comes in. It's not my line, but it's a good line. It's, it's not from... Well, now it's yours, okay? <laughs> now it's become yours. But again, thank you so much, Ravi Jacobson. Really, um, thank, you. I, thank you for that. Thank you, for, thank you on behalf of our generation. Thank you for being a voice of, of love, of beauty. What's the words that he always uses of authenticity, of, <laughs> of realness. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it as well as you do it, but thank you for that because our children and our grandchildren are going to thank people like you and Rabbi Taub and all those educators that are speaking in the way of love and connection and attachment, because we need to make sure that this generation, because this is a generation that's going to bring Mashiach. I know it. These are the teens. These these teens, these youth are the ones that are going to greet the Rebbe. They're going to greet Mashiach. So 
Thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. And I really thank you for those words and sentiments. Yes. And even more what's behind the words. Mm -hmm.